What number is this, Chip? Zilch 185. We're going to do it. We're diving into Pull It with Elliot Marks. Right, Elliot? Sure. <laughs> okay, no, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short, I know. You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. Welcome back to Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. Today, we're going to have some fun. We're going off the deep end into an album that is sometimes controversial, sometimes ignored, sometimes beloved. Uh, from 1987, it is Pull It from the Monkeys. And today, I'm joined by Elliot Marks, who is a fellow fan and friend of the show Zilch. And a friend of mine as well, a great Monkees fan, someone I really respect, somebody whose music opinion I really respect. And I'm sure that there are things we're going to disagree and agree on here. Welcome to the show once again, Elliot. Good to see you. Ah, shucks. Thanks, Ken. Uh, it's cool to be here. It's always great to have you here. There's always so much going on in the world of the Monkees, but today I just wanted to sit down and talk to you about the music. Today's show, it's going to be just two guys talking that are Monkees fans, you know. Yeah. Just like your memories of when it came out, and then we'll do a bit of a track by track and just overall things that we felt could have been done different or should have been done different or... Should have been done different? We, we are talking about pull it, right? Right. <laughs> Nothing should have been done differently. <laughs> Very good. You know, it's weird that... Monkeys fans seem to really focus on the first four or six albums. And that is, to a lot of people, that is all their monkeys are. You know what I mean? And to other people, they're they're in on everything. And you and I tend to be a more in on everything. We, we find the whole uh, history and discography fascinating. I, I think that's fair to say. Correct? Yeah, you know, I... Yes, because I don't think these stories really just ended with, you know, whatever demarker, whatever marker of the end of the 60s you want to use, uh, the moon landing, Woodstock, uh, or Kent State in 70. I mean, the story kept going. Yeah, the 60s may have ended, but I mean, that that incredible, what little Stephen always calls the renaissance uh, of just music and popular culture just kind of exploding partly because of the amount of children from the baby boom, but just so much was in the air. I, the story kept going. And I, I think things like pool it and justice and good times kind of help further the story of the music from the sixties. There's no shame in calling that the golden age. I mean, that's when they were having hits. That's when they were selling records. That's, you know, when they were in teen beat and okay, that's a different, those are different achievements and, pool it. Um, but I mean, I, I think the story continues and I, I think we're really lucky when the story continues. I was reading some Beatles forum somewhere and somebody says, Oh, I'm not interested at all in what 
albums Ringo has to put out. And I'm like, really? Not even just to hear his drumming as an 81-year-old. Isn't that just interesting in and of itself? An 81-year-old drumming, like, you take a couple seconds, and then you think, okay, this is a really important drummer. I, I don't I don't understand. I mean, to, to commit yourself to a 15-minute Ringo EP, yeah, I, I don't I don't see, I, you're just missing a piece of the story. Yeah, I, I, I kind of always approach work that way. Right. Is it... Is it a crucial plot point 80 years later when we go back and that EP3 by Ringo? Is that? No, but that's the part that we get to experience right now. I didn't get to experience. This is this is my first Monkeys album. Pool It is. I, I was, you know, born after they had broken up. So. So you were saying this was your first Monkeys album? Yeah. Let, let me tell you where I was at. I was uh, 13. Um, obviously the, the whole MTV thing had happened. I was a, I consider myself an MTV kid. I mean, that was such an important part and artistic aesthetic of, of the eighties, especially if you were a teen and a tween, which I guess I was at the time. Um, and yeah, you know, I think this conversation is going to touch on just how present the 1960s were in the 1980s period. And so I, I was pretty hip. I think as an 11, 12-year-old, I certainly knew my Beatles, my Stones, my Who, and my Kinks. Uh, and then I knew the 60s television that had been on forever, like Gilligan's Island and I Dream of Genie and Bewitched. Those were on throughout my childhood, my, my single-digit days. Those shows were on in repeat constantly. So I had a decent idea, the best you could put together from LPs and TV reruns, of 60s and i kind of just super hyper focused on the music and then mtv does that incredible you know sort of crossover and and starts showing those monkeys episodes absolutely fantastic uh i was at that greek theater show the the, the famous one where mike came out so i saw all four of them play together at that that show in 86 had good seats too Mr. John Stamos sat behind us. So uh, somehow dad scored good seats for that one at the Greek. Uh, that was really, really an exciting show. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners was at that, were, were at those shows, that, the tour with Herman's Hermits and Gary Puck and the Union Gap and the Grassroots and then the Monkees came out. And then, of course, Nesmith came out at the end. Wow. Then the comeback single that was then, this is now, that was, that was definitely good. And then Pool It. So, yeah, I was 13. So Pool It comes out in August. Uh, so I am just about to head off to high school. So I probably got Pool It on cassette the weekend it came out, something like that, or very shortly thereafter. So I probably got it before I started high school. In those days, high school would have started in early September, right after Labor Day. So I would have had about five weeks to listen to it before the sort of cataclysmic shift of identity that happens in high school. So that, it, it you know, I, in, in thinking about this episode, I think, is that one of the last pieces of pop culture that I consumed as a, before my life really started in, in high school, um, that I kind of bought with, little boy enthusiasm before I started buying things with teenage. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you know, of course you kind of hold on to childish things for all the way through high school, but um, 
man, my life changed when I started high school. So Pulit may have been one of those last artifacts that I was listening to in mom's car, running errands or wherever I listened to my cassettes, still in my little boy mindset. Before you had went on the odyssey to become a man. Well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a dramatic way of putting it. Well, yeah, but, but when you think about it, that's the way that like historical pop culture has always kind of uh, envisioned everything. He goes yeah. through a door, a boy, and comes out a man, a warrior, right? So yeah. there's such a an importance placed on that, that like... Yeah, with the, the Joseph Campbell, you know. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and we now we realize that there are so many hills and valleys from that point to that point, like, well, what aren't you telling us? You know what I mean? There's a whole, there's, there's decades of stories in those couple of moments. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, I, yes, sure. Uh, but the, the, uh, there's such a clear delineation now. I could see it now in, mm -hmm. in, in my, in hindsight, uh, up until ninth grade, I was very, very much, uh, an introvert. And that, that is just how I'm hardwired. And that's, and that's who I am. One or two friends and uh, everything had to happen and coalesce on my timeline and, and in my comfort zone. And, and I was totally fine just living, just sort of jumping on my bed, listening to Kinks records. I did not need friends around. I was a-okay. Well, they were your friends, the Kinks and the Beatles. Yeah, they, everybody else. Sure. Oh sure, yeah. And this is this is before I could play guitar, but I knew that was going to happen. That was definitely what was going to happen. I was going to be playing along with these kink songs, and as you say, kind of just rejoining my friends. Uh, but at this time, the best I could do with the kinks was jump on my bed. <laughs> so there you go. You also didn't have to buy any uh, musical equipment. You could just bounce up and down. Maybe just, maybe just, a tennis racket. Just needed springs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So high school comes in high school for the next 15 years. I'm kind of the center or somehow of a kind of vibrant social group. There's four, five, six of us. And honestly, I try on the shoes of being semi extrovert, an, extro an introvert in extroverts clothing, something like that. Um, right through high school, right through college. Through the early parts of my career, I have a social network that's kind of just incredible. People that are just spilling out of my house and like, oh, okay, that was fun. And then it kind of ends. And I'm like, I'm perfectly happy with that being over. I'm great back now with my records. And now I don't need to jump on my bed. I'm probably throw out my knee anyway. So uh, it's just, you know, so that, that Monkeys album might have really been one of those last pieces before I get caught up in this social maelstrom for yeah. decades. The last gasp of adolescence, perhaps. That's yeah. an overly dramatic way, but you know, I like drama anyway. Uh, uh, I was, yeah. I, I was 24 and Elliot, mm -hmm. I'm to the point where I need a calculator. If I ever have to figure out how old I was at some point, I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, it's, it's a need. It's, it's not a, <laughs> just just fact checking i mean it's a straight up need i was 24 and i remember uh at this point you know i had been a kid of the 60s and 70s and uh not even knowing of something like changes you know what i'm yeah. saying or the yeah, dolan's yeah. jones boys and heart album you know or well, things those were like so that. hard to find 
Yeah. 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 The, on the other hand, more of the monkeys, you, every yard sale. There, there it yeah. was. There it was, you know. So there were some things that were immediately available, and the library was no help because you'd go and it would like, here's the story of the monkeys. And it would end even before Head would be in there. You know what I mean? Right, right, like, yeah. It was just tripped off. And I remember seeing Head in the 70s on CBS just like, what is going on here? It was on a late night movie. Yeah. They, Gosh, they didn't put it on the regular, uh, like... Like if, like Planet of the Apes would air at like eight o'clock or nine o'clock, you know what I mean? But not head. That was shoved to late night. Didn't you love that? I mean, at that at that time, <clears throat> there was a show called Night Flight on USA oh, yeah. Network. I mean, that was the greatest thing for the 12, 13, 14, 15 year old me watching the just this really sort of psychedelic, bizarre, and then the, the sort of unedited versions of videos I'd been watching on MTV and just the strange comedy bits, Marx Brothers. It was just, Night Flight was just this collage of this strange programming that, like you say, would happen after midnight on, on yeah. the weekends, and I'd be up till five watching this stuff. You but almost yeah, I, had I, a feeling like you had to pay attention to Night Flight because it was going to be stripped away from you at any moment. Like, this is too good. Like, there's too much weirdness going on here. Yes. And they'd go from Devo to Kate Bush to Pink Floyd to Kiss to Cheap Trick to David Byrne to uh, Don Fagan. You know, it was all over the map. And then Fritz the Cat and Heavy yeah. Metal and Fantastic yeah. Planet and just, you know, it's just, what? What is this stuff? It was amazing. So at this point, I was uh, working in the D.C. area, and I had some success working in retail and writing for newspapers and taking photos and doing stand-up comedy. So I'm like an established adult at this point, whatever the hell that means. But uh, I remember the MTV thing happening, and my Uncle Tom like, you're seriously into the monkeys? And I'm like, yeah, I've always loved the monkeys. And I said, you know, like he would always say things like, ah, kiss is a passing fad. Everything's a passing fad, you know, and I would say, well, they're not a passing fad anymore. This is the second time around, right? Yeah, right. So I was actually living in his downstairs. I had an apartment in his downstairs at that time. And he just was, he was just, his mind was boggled that I was buying all the monkeys albums when they all came out, this was around the same time that the Beatles were released on CD. And then we had the monkeys coming out. And I remember going in the store and buying all of them that were available in one shot. Yeah. It was an amazing thing to be able to do that because when you were a kid, you know, you had your allowance money, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that was a big expenditure in 87. Okay. Yeah. Comic books are 25 cents. I, I need a few of them and I need to get this record at this yard sale or, you know, mm -hmm. however it worked out. You had to budget. But mm -hmm. at that point, it was just like, give me all the monkeys you have. And it yeah. was, uh, you know, I felt like. I was holding the sword at Excalibur aloft and making a proclamation. And the guy just said, sure, dude, the new Van Halen's in, you know. So, uh, <laughs> but this was an album that I think took a lot of Monkees fans by surprise. As we said, it came out in 1987. This is off the birth of the show being shown on MTV and uh, the return of them on the charts. And the touring was doing fantastic. And this was a chance for the monkeys to, like, become legit again, if you will. 
you know, in pop culture. This was a chance to like, I'm surprised they didn't wind up on Miami Vice. Doesn't it seem like that would have been an episode that was made and we just don't know about it yet that somehow they're wearing those jackets with the sleeves up to here and, you know, know, neon, neon pink flowing silk shirt underneath a white blazer. Yeah. Pretty much the way they looked in most of their promo picks. I mean, uh-huh. that's that's how they look. They, they And even one of the songs on this album is very Miami Vice, but we'll get to that. Um, oh, I think I, I think I know which one you're thinking, but yeah, we will I get to I think so, that. too. Yeah, we'll get to that. But it, it just seems like there were a lot of things that were happening. And here comes this album. And then we hear about the potential of uh, The New Monkeys, which is not a new album from these guys, but a whole different set of things. And so we've got both of those competing things going on. And it was a very interesting time in Monkey's pop culture, right? It's just an interesting time in the 60s being relevant in the 1980s. You know, this Poolit was not a bad idea. It There was commercial viability for 60s artists. You know, earlier in the 80s, the Moody Blues, in my opinion – create their best singles you know you know maybe it's just because i was a kid but when in your wildest dreams come out that to me that that is the moody blues song i want to hear i think moody blues obviously as an adult i've gone back and i really really respect that catalog but some of that 80s stuff yeah some of the the synth sounds might have been okay we wouldn't do that now and we wouldn't have done it earlier but it it's of a time and it really works steve winwood was having incredible hits um i think the, the roll with it album and uh, higher love. These are huge, huge hits. Eric Clapton had a huge hit with the 87 version of after midnight. Um, the grateful dead were in the charts for the first time ever in what was it? July of 87. So pull comes out August 87 in July of 87, the dead have their biggest hit ever. This was a great time on the charts at that time was Dionne Warwick from the 1960s, Bob Seger, you get some early Seeger in the 60s, Aretha Franklin, like I said, Steve Winwood. The What was just released basically simultaneously with Pool It was the last top 10 Fleetwood Mac song, Little Lies. Um, it was just a great time. The song of 86, the biggest selling song in 1986, that's what friends are for, written by Burt Bacharach and Carol Bayer Sager, with at least two 60s notables on it, uh, Elton John and Dionne Warwick. That was that wasn't just oh kind of big song in '86. It, it it sold more. It was the biggest hit of 1986. Was a song written by a person, Bert Bacharach, who's so tied in with the 1960s sound. So it was not absurd, right? The biggest album of '86, or at least one of the biggest albums, was Graceland. Um, if you think about the movies of 1987, La Bamba. I know that ends in 1959, but it's of an era. The Lost Boys seems futuristic enough. The big hit from The Lost Boys, I don't know if you remember, is the Echo and Bunnymen version of People Are Strange. Right. Two other big 87 movies were Good Morning Vietnam, Full Metal Jacket, doing all the uh, 60s music there. Uh, it was This was a good idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this was a good idea. And make no mistake about it, every act that you mentioned had an updated 80s sound. Yeah. Even even, even if they stayed true, 
yeah. to what they were, it still had that tinge. I mean, like listen to Yes, for example. Uh, it now sounds completely normal, but at the time, Owner of a Lonely Heart was so shocking to hear. Yeah. You know, yeah. elements of rap in a Yes song? This is, what is this, you know? And one only has to look at what happened in the 70s to everything from Shawna to Grease to Chuck Berry mm -hmm. to everything the 20 years before it was new again. And here we are in the 80s. See, but, and, and I think that. I think, you know, while those things were kind of popular on the charts, Shawna uh, and, you know, undeniably popular was Happy Days and, yeah. and Laverne and Shirley, that those were top, you know, the Shawna was not, you know, they, they had this presence, but it wasn't like Graceland. You know, right. this, you know, this defining moment, a cultural touchstone. Yeah. And, you know, and so, you you know, one lens is, well, just they were just too late with Pull It. But that's not true, because a couple months after Pull It comes George's biggest album, uh, George Harrison with Cloud Nine. In a year after Pull It, you get Kokomo, which is possibly one of the bigger Beach Boys singles, if not one of the biggest. It's so, you know, yeah, you, you could look at the, and you could look at, and it continues into the, into the 90s. We get some, you know, backward looking stuff at the 70s. Um, but again, it, it was on the fringe. Somehow in the 80s, 60 stuff was mainstream. It, and it, and it, it was just, or there was the Bengals doing Hazy Shade of Winter. We, we have a Tommy James co-write on this album. Mm -hmm. 87 was the year for Tommy James. Uh, I think it was Moni Moni replay, uh, by Billy Idol. His live version of that went to number one, replacing Tiffany's version at number one of I Think We're Alone Now. So again, yeah. two songs super associated with the 60s that were – Again, not in the top 50 or the t number one songs. Tommy James replaced Tommy James at number one in 1987. I mean, the, 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 when does that happen? It's, it's crazy. Well, let's dive a little bit into the track by track. I just want to take a look at an ad that was from an issue of Pulse magazine. And it says, Back with a Splash, The Monkees, all new hit album, Pull It. And it was available on cassette. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, record and, uh, actually it says album and cassette for six ninety nine and twelve ninety nine for the compact disc. And it had the smash single heart and soul, which is what we're going to kick off this discussion from. And it's weird because it says Rhino and capital. That's something that you never really saw too much together. All the classic monkey albums are also on sale now. Uh, so it's a reminder that you can pick up their previous works, but they were showing off the new album. But it's interesting to look back and see that both albums and cassettes cost the same and that the CD was a whopping twelve ninety nine, which yeah. those are great deals at this point. But uh, I th I didn't have a CD player yet in eighty seven. I don't I don't I, I remember the first CD I ever buy is Full Moon Fever, which I think is probably eighty nine, I wanna say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, I, the, the CD was, uh, did you have one in 87? Yes, at this point I, I had. And after you move a few times with your vinyl, you start <laughs> to think this is not the best 
way to do things. <laughs> yeah. Especially like when you've went through a couple divorces and you're like 50, it's like, yeah, this is not the way to do things. But anyway, so while vinyl may have uh, many fans and many reasons to love it, there's also a lot of reasons when you got to schlep it around. It's heavy. Yeah. It's, and, and they, they get damaged along the way. Yeah. This album was not a particularly commercial uh, success, if you will. It only went up to 72 on Billboard's 200. Uh, only one single from the album, Heart and Soul, managed to make it into the Billboard Hot 100 chart, peaking at 87. The follow-up single, a remixed version of Every Step of the Way, failed to chart. The album cover was featured on Pitchfork Media list of the worst record covers of all time. I guess we can start there before we dive into Heart and Soul. What do you think of the cover? Uh, again, an idea that... Oh, no, the ter- idea was terrible. The idea of hiring uh, Henry Diltz to do it, great idea. Great idea. Uh, this, this is a super famous photographer, so associated with the Morrison Hotel photograph and other 60s, you know, iconic photographs. Definitely knows the L.A., how to get, capture L.A. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's the three hirsute monkeys with their shirts off in a swimming pool with the little red buoys around them uh, to prevent them from drowning ostensibly. Like, oh, it's a dreadful cover. With their dad bods. Yeah. It's, it, and it's not even – I was shocked doing some research that it was actually Henry Diltz because it doesn't even seem like a really well-composed photograph. And I, you know, I, Henry Diltz has an eye, and you just don't see it in this <laughs> so much. Yeah, that's yeah. Um, this is possibly the fatal flaw of the album. I mean, uh, uh, whoever greenlit that idea, or you know, just just the idea of middle-aged guys taking off their shirt in the pool. I, I, I you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be ageist or. Well, you're not. You know, you're not. Size, it, it, but it, it's it's it, 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 it with the, the hairy chest, and it's really not a not a good decision. But just keep in mind, right now, there's somebody out there swooning over that same picture. So it all it all works for some people, doesn't work for some. I would like to have had something a little bit more uh, challenging, like. Let's say that the pool would would be empty and Peter's cleaning the pool. Davy's uh, in the sun, you know, getting sun on one of those fold out chairs and Mickey playing drums at the other end of the pool. That to me would have been a much better album cover. And then this picture on the inside would be some brevity, some levity. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You know, I was I was thinking that I, I was seeing like the three of them in in lounges and then uh there is a fourth there is you could just see the the white pants talking more Miami Vice the white pants of a fourth person that's not photographed but you see that there's maybe the thigh of a fourth person sitting there this allusion to uh Nesmith not being yeah. there or, or 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 something like I mean if you had to put it in the I mean the, it's not a pool album to begin with so however they shoehorn themselves into the pool idea and then saw the photograph. There was, you know, it at any point it didn't need to be called Pool It. I also have another idea. Yeah, you see the logo in the water, like like mm-hmm. it's submerged. 
and then you see them with their eyes closed in the bottom part of the thing, like on floaties. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So it yeah, looks yeah. like they're like resting in floating on the water and the logo is there. I think that would be a lot better. But I think there's something about just like it, this looks just too casual for a cover shot. Yeah. But then again, it probably looks great on MP3. So there we go. So let's kick off with Heart and Soul. Put your heart and soul where I can see them shine. I wish you put your heart and soul where I can think them mine. Heart and Soul written by Simon Byrne and Andrew Howe. What are your thoughts on Heart and Soul? You know, uh... I loved it when I was 13. It really it really snapped and it felt great. It felt definitely of a piece with that was then, this is now. It felt like a companion to that. Um, I don't, you know, in retrospect, I don't know if we necessarily needed a, the next single to sound so similar to the first one. One thing that comes up a lot in this album is the inaccessibility of the heart. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a couple references and these songs are all written by different people so it's you know it's got to be a coincidence or probably is a coincidence but you know mickey's singing put your heart and soul where i can see them shine uh as if they're out of you right now uh and i think that's a that's a that's a good lyric uh you, you know the guys that wrote this song kind of interesting the the guy Simon Byrne, he's he's a drummer he's in one of those canterbury progressive rock bands called uh gringo in you know, 70, 71, they make one album. It's okay. It's kind of proggy, early British prog. And it, it does its thing. He hooks up with Andrew Howell. Andrew Howell had written a song for Nick Lowe and was tied in because the producer of, of Pool It had done a bunch of Nick Lowe or a, a, at least one Nick Lowe album, but was tied in with that kind of pub rock scene. Byrne and Howell are kind of writing songs on their own. And, and they, they, they collaborate. Somehow they find each other in England. Ken, do you know Monster Munch? It is the British equivalent of kind of a Funyun, kind of a corn nut. Anyway, there's this crisp uh, called Monster Munch. Bernard Howell did the Monster Munch, and I have to just assume it was like send in six packages of Monster Munch and we will send you this EP. It is... So charming. It must be one of the most charming children's. And I know you like, I know you were going through a Wiggles phase not too long ago. I know you have an appreciation for like really well, smart, constructed songs aimed at children that can be enjoyed by adults. Or aimed at anyone that can yeah. be enjoyed by anybody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a good song is a good song is a good song. Do yourself a favor. You, I think it's on. I don't know if it's on. It's on. You could stream it on Bandcamp. Um, it, the Monster Munch album is up there, and it is so cute. And since Bird can drum, it's like proggy drumming on these children's songs. Wow. Like the sixteen notes on the hi hat. It's like it's really, really, really cute. I don't. I don't know how it's tied into Monster Munch so much. I, there's characters on the packet and maybe they they get their songs, but it's really cute. But here's the thing. So Byrne got a co-writing credit when he was in that prog band from Canterbury or the Canterbury Sound uh, called Gringo. 
Heart and Soul comes out, like you said, what makes it number 83 or something, 86. Doesn't do much. His career is kind of stalled until 2010. The biggest album of 2010 is Eminem's Recovery. The first song samples Gringo. Uh, what are the songs on Gringo called? Patriotic Song, I think it's what it's called. And Eminem samples that for his song called Wind Blows. And now that song has like 88 million streams on Spotify. So here is, I know the listener has been waiting for the Eminem Monkeys connection. And this is where it is. Uh, it's it's convoluted, <laughs> but one of the guys that wrote Heart and Soul also wrote a song for Gringo. 40 years later, Eminem samples that song and it sells, you know, oct- eight times platinum and one of the biggest selling songs of, or one of the w- most well-known rap songs of the 21st century. Wow. How is that for just like stumbling around and, you know, from Monster Munch to, I mean, it's just, wow, yeah. And and sort of in the middle of all of this is this kind of anodyne, largely benign pop song with the one interesting lyric about putting your heart and soul where you could see them shine. And you could make them mine. <laughs> exactly. I think this is a great single. It It is a lot of fun. Great performances all around. I feel that this is a really strong album opener, too, in a lot of ways, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think that it is kind of like, hey, remember what you liked last summer? We're back with this, with even yeah. more of that. So I think yeah. it was a good introductory thing. I feel that this album definitely, they should have done whatever they had to do to put that was then, this is now on this album. Yeah. That way it could have had the sticker featuring that mm-hmm. was then, this is now, heart and soul, and it would have been like a no-brainer for Monkeys fans to buy it because not everybody that bought, you know, I almost have to think that, yes, there were new fans that bought that compilation with uh, Kicks and Anytime, Anyplace, and right. that was then, this is now. I think that there are many new fans that bought that, but I think that there were people who also might have been turned off on it because it was a compilation. Yeah, yeah, sure. You know, back then that kind of thing mattered. Now it doesn't. But I think had taken that huge hit and dropped it on here, it could have made somebody that was more a casual fan go, you know what? I did like that song. I'm going to give this one a shot. Where they might not buy a compilation because they already have Arista's Greatest Hits or they're just not interested. You know what I'm saying? So I think that that was a mistake. However, it could have worked or didn't work. I don't know the ins and outs, but uh, sadly, the video for this, which is a fun one, uh, it kind of it encapsulates a best of what was on MTV in many yeah. ways. There was, you know, little uh, glares at Genesis or uh, the police, you know, like the monkeys doing synchronicity. Like, <laughs> that's yeah. kind of what we're seeing. We even see the monkeys uh, with a slight homage to everything hair metal and kiss with the white makeup and exactly. Mickey yeah. sticking his tongue out. So, you know, it's just a, a really wonderful thing. Sadly, it was not promoted on MTV. We'll do a whole show on that down the road. But chances are you probably know that story. So we're just going to stick to the music today. But By the way, that's, that's not the only connection. It's This is t- tenuous, but uh, Pool It was recorded at Cherokee Studios mm-hmm. around the same time that Vinnie Vincent's Invasion was being recorded in the same studio. So they, th- these guys might have run into each other 
uh, and cross paths. Well, I hope that it was enjoyable for them uh, because <laughs> that guy. Anyway, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna just talk about the generic credits real quick, okay? Yeah, sure. The base on this album, uh, it seems to be divided between Davy Ferringer or Ferringer and George Hawkins, drums Curly Smith. The guitar is Mark Christian. Keyboards programmed and arranged and strings by Mike Egizi, E-G-I-Z-I. Percussion, Craig Otsbo, Roger. So there we go. That And there's going to be other musicians that will highlight around the way. But so far, that's, that's kind of like the uh, session players that were on that album. And there are other people that will spotlight along the way. Oh, sure. But, you know, I, there's some interesting little... Uh, um, Ferringer, the the bass player, he goes on to be the founding member, one of the founding members of Cracker, one of the great 90s sort of alt-rock bands. And Curly Smith, did you see when he went viral um, about a year ago? He was like the 90s drummer for Boston. Mm -hmm. And one day his son found, was just turned on his dad's truck. They live up in Big Sky country somewhere. And turn on his dad's truck, and he says, oh, is that my dad singing? And it was one of his dad's demos from, I don't know, around this time. And Curly Smith sings and drums, and the son loved it, and he put it on TikTok with his now, like, you know, middle-aged plus dad. And somehow this thing went viral. It was on one of, it was either on Kimmel or Fallon or one of the, you know, it had gone I viral remember on TikTok. This. Yeah, that's the drummer on Pull It. Wow, amazing. It's all interconnected. The monkey universe is vast and wide. Uh, so let's, speaking of vast and wide, and who would have thought that a punk rock song would wind up on a monkey's album? But here we are. I'd go the whole wide world. the whole wide world this is a great song both on this album and the original version of the album Ooh. and uh of course it was eric golden who is known as reckless eric and just to give a little bit about that it's a single from 1977 whole wide world and uh the song was included in mojo magazine's list of the best punk rock singles of all time and uh, it really does hold up. It's a great song, and it's amazing. And it turns out he also was a Monkees fan. And there's an article that you can find on monkeyslivealmanac.com all about this. They have a rather wonderful, uh, extensive bit about Pulit that is, it seems never-ending. But uh, it, it's fantastic. Now, what do you think of this version of Whole Wide World? Ken, this should have been the single. This should have been the single. And if you look at Spotify, everybody agrees. Well, not everybody. But there are three and a half million streams of this song. Uh, this is the song that people come to when they find Pula. Now, I don't know if it was licensed somewhere because the the rest of the songs have 100,000 listens, you know, maybe a quarter and million. this one through the roof. Through the roof. Uh, by, by a multiple of 10, at least. Uh, and it is so good. It is definitely the highlight of the album. If you had to condense this album to one song, if you were trying to 
I don't believe one should try to convert people into music, but if you wanted to show people, hey, they, the pool, it's not so bad. Listen to the, this one could still, this one still stands up on when you hear it on uh, Underground Garage or, or you, uh, Drew Carey does a really great radio show on Underground Garage. This is the kind of, this would fit in with earlier monkey stuff. This is absolutely great. And you're right. Yeah. Reckless Eric, he was on Stiff Records that sort of, punk but pub rock label uh in england and seven his co-label mate was once again nick lowe so nick nick lowe has found a kind of connection to a second song here oh i i love this song and i i was i was watching reckless eric play uh a lot during lockdown and he and his wife amy rigby they jumped onto my attention they did heading into the election. They had a, a song called "Vote the Effer Out," and it was. I remember. Yeah, it, it felt really good to me that song at, at the time. And he tells a story. He was 19 when he wrote this song, living in Hull, and, and there was a, a pub in Hull. And he gets up there and he sings this song. And he basically wrote the song because it had two chords on the guitar, and it's what he could handle at 19. And he gets up there, plays the song, good response. That song sends him around the whole wide world. He says he was in dozens of countries over the next 20, 30 years, just playing everywhere. And, and the song is about trying to find your dream girl. She could be in Tahiti, she could be here, she could be there. You never know, so you gotta go the whole wide world just to find her. He gets back to his pub 30 years later, and the, the bartender says to him, oh, this woman on stage, she does one of your songs. And he says, oh, okay. He, he knew which one. He sees her play the song, jump to the end. They are madly in love and got married. And that's Amy Rigby, an American artist. So he traveled the whole wide world. and Just then to found find her. Right in the pub where it all originated. That is an amazing story. That's a movie right there. Talk about serendipity. Isn't that, isn't, I mean, I, you know, whoa. And so, yeah, I, I will never hear Whole Wide World differently. It, she was right there in the, the whole time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, not mm -hmm. the whole time. He had to travel the world to get back to now. Yeah. yeah. The performance on this is just fantastic. Mickey is, is definitely. Uh, you know, there's a saying, tr victims of their time, right? Mickey is in the times and it is fresh and it is new and it is great and it deserves every accolade that it, it has coming to it. it. It makes me feel good too. And it says that the monkeys are not just a nostalgia act. Oh yeah. Oh, oh, for sure. I, this, like I said, this should have been the single and it should have been treated like the single, uh, and it never, it wasn't even the second single. This should have been the, I, I, you know, I don't know. Was it wasn't my job. Listen, I was like, I, like I was saying, I was getting ready for ninth grade, so I had yeah. no say in this matter. I still don't. Well, there's reasons, right? There's reasons. Here's the video treatment. You ready? Oh yeah, sure. Mickey has this woman, and he goes back to meet her, and she says, "Gone on a trip." So then we see. Uh, him say, I got to find her, guys. And then he, Mickey, and Peter go to various beaches around the world. 
and the campfinder and like they might wind up in a pot being cooked by cannibals i don't know whatever weird thing you'd have happen and then they get parachuted out and it would all be cheesy looking and not real you know what i mean yeah and they wind up going back to the same place they were he gets in the pool with one of these floaties because we're tying it into the album cover and there she is in the same kind of floaty Mm -hmm. and they're together and it's like a happy ending. And then David and Peter come up alongside him. And it's like, uh, yeah, you guys can leave. Now. <laughs> right. I think that could have been a fun video. But yeah, yeah. that could have yeah. been neat. But yeah, it's definitely a great progressive song for them at the time. You know, seriously. And, and, and you know, and it's got that um, it's got credibility. Mm hmm. And, and and later Stepping Stone would have equal punk credibility, uh, you know. Uh, so yeah, they they, they kind of dabble in in punk and pub rock. Later they do that Slade Christmas song, right? Mm-hmm. Like these are oh okay, you could kind of make a, a connection there. Great track. So track three, Long Way Home. Say yes. Track three, Long Way Home, written by Bobby Hart and Dick, Dick Eastman. Eastman. Yes. So it's got that tie-in to Bobby Hart, right? And we've yeah. got Davy Jones. Uh, this is a song Taylor made for him, if you will. And uh, what are your thoughts on this one, Long Way Home? All right. Should not be called Long Way Home. It should be called Say Yes, Say No, because I, I keep coming Great back. Great idea. <laughs> Long Way Home. Ah, um, listen, I, I think you you push heart into monkeys things for 60s credibility. You know, I think it's 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 a little gimmicky, but here here's a different way of approaching it. Hart and Eastman had written a huge hit for New Edition called My Secret. And when, when you go back and see the old movie Crush Groove. Um, that's the song New Edition play in the song. This this was the fourth single. If you see the video for My Secret, Magic Johnson's in it, clowning around with the, the boys from New Edition. Um, when you hear Long Way Home now, think about a song from men who just had a success writing for New Edition, which were, for people that don't remember, it was Bobby Brown's band when he was a little teenager, and it's just boy band kind of music um and i can once i've learned that long way home just to me sounds like a new edition reject it sounds like it's that teen tween market and i think new edition could have really done it could have had a hit with it but it is in that mode i would even guess you say maybe Taylor made for Davey. I don't know. I think it might have been Taylor made for Ralph Tennyson or Bobby Brown or somebody in New Edition because it, it's it's using almost the same synth sounds, the same drum sounds. Um, it is a New Edition song, as far as I'm concerned. And I think Davey does a good job. I think this is one of the better songs that Davey sings on the album. Um, these two, by the way, are the ones that wrote "Anytime, Any Place, Anywhere." So this is not Eastman's first 
monkeys co-write either. Right, right. Say, uh, say, come jumps right into my mind. Long Way Home, not a great title. Not so much. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, and I feel that Davey gets the short end of the stick. You know, he is standing up. But, it, <laughs> uh, you know, he, he gets the short end of the stick as far as songs that have more purpose than other being sad or swoony. You know what I mean? And the one that is coming up, we'll talk about. There's a couple that were supposed to be spotlights for him that were hits and misses in some ways, but we'll, we'll get to that. Up next, we have Secret Heart. Secret Heart, written by Brian Fairweather and Martin Page, who wrote The House of Stone and Love and had a big hit with that. Oh, yeah. And that, that Go West song, uh, King of Wishful Thinking, that yes. was in the Pretty Woman soundtrack. Oh, man. This might be my favorite song. I think uh, on this album, I think Mickey's vocal performance is beautiful. Just, just stunning. It, 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 yeah, it's it's got a dated sound, and even the chord progression sounds dated somehow. But this one is great. Mickey's singing is just phenomenal, and and again, this should have worked because Martin Page it, it fascinates me. That, that Go West song and his his solo song, and but he in 1985 wrote the much hated, but I I love it. We built the city for Jefferson Starship. Huge, huge hit, obviously. And also in 85, he wrote These Dreams for Heart. These are serious, serious songwriting credits. These, these songs did numbers. Yes. And, uh, and, and another, he wrote with Neil Diamond, he wrote for Barbara Streisand. Um, this is a serious, serious songwriter. Uh, and I hear it in that song. Uh, you know, I think, it's, I think Secret Heart is a phenomenal song. What what are your what are your thoughts? I I I know I've, I've spoken about Secret Heart in the past, but I really like it. It almost seems like for some reason I don't know why, but I always think this should be a side two song. Mm. That's talking about placement on the album more than anything. It almost seems like we should have been introduced to Peter Tork and a more much upbeat Davy Jones at this point in the album. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind of like okay, Mickey just knocked it out of the park with two songs back to back. We needed something here. And this is where maybe getting in or uh, even Rico would have been better to pull up a bit. But we'll, we'll get to it since you went away. But we'll, again, we'll get to that. Well, yeah. OK, so let me just m make this connection here. If when you listen to Secret Heart, it kind of it must proceed getting in, if you ask me, because the last lines of Secret Heart is and again, a the idea of a heart being secret or something that's out of you. The last lines are, you hold the key to my secret heart. I just turn the lock and we could be lovers after dark. The first line in Getting In, Peter sings kind of ghoulishly, actually, I'm getting into your heart. So that that whole thing of, you got the key to my secret heart, just turn the lock and we could be lovers after dark. And then Peter comes in and says, oh, <laughs> I'm getting into your heart. Like, as though the key were given to him. Uh, I don't know if that's an accident. Uh, I love it. I hear the this going, 
And I've you know kind of perversely created this scenario in my mind where yeah, but it's there, you know what I mean. So why wasn't the album called Heart and Soul? Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. That absolutely. I you know and and they stuck with Pull It, which you know might have been its damning feature. Uh, You know, and the other connection with Secret Heart is getting in the the song we're about to talk about definitely has a Ghostbusters feel to it in in its musicianship and its keyboard line. Martin Page, who 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 wrote Secret Heart, was the man that played the keyboards on Ghostbuster on the Ray Parker wow. Jr. Ghostbusters. So wow, it's yeah, it's all connected, folks. It's, it's all, all music. Connected. Peter Tork's getting in. I'm getting getting in i love peter tork's work on this album it is new wave uh monkeys if you will going off of whole wide world you know incorporating that i love it how he's like a cross between i don't know david bowie david byrne and peter tork it's just some weird hybrid yeah and all peter at some point uh your thoughts on getting in I'm, i'm assuming you like it I do. I do. Musically, it's probably one of the more sophisticated songs that Peter ever wrote. Then, by the way, this is our first self-written monkey song on the album. There's only two on here. Um, and Peter got this one. Strange song. Like, like I said, I don't want to say ghoulish, but in a sort of fakey vampire voice. There's an affect that Peter is creating for his voice. Yeah, but if you think about it, it's it's almost goth like. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Uh, something like Peter Murphy or yeah. Bauhaus or something. Peter was definitely tied into something here, and had this production been a little bit different, it would have been a new wave dance classic, uh, a goth oh. almost version of Peter Tork. It's very strange, but it's there, and I love it. And there's that that section, that kind of breakdown section where the, the the rhythm becomes two against three, which is a real common rhythm in Africa. Uh, you just feel this rhythmic shift of you know the, the the kick drum is kicking out you know one two three four like it should, but the rest of the band is kind of playing quarter note triplets over it. So they're they're fitting in yeah. six pulses over six beats over the four pulses, and that's a challenging thing to do. Um, not unheard of, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's so disorienting when it comes and you don't really, I don't quite expect this song to be disorienting and that happens and it, and it, everything strips away and it's a focus on the two against three rhythm. It's great. It, you know, it's, it's a great thing to listen for. Um, and I, and again, I'm really hoping after listening to this, people go in and try to. You know, it's a lot of um, train spotting that I think we're doing here. I'm pointing out, oh, this is an interesting thing. If you look at it, if you tilt your head 45 degrees and look at it this way and squint one eye, it's kind of cool if you look at it. Uh, You know, this being such a maligned album, I I hope we're pointing out the things that are kind of fun that might have, you wouldn't have known who these, necessarily would have known who these songwriters are. Some of them are rather obscure. I I hope we're pointing out things that are like, oh, I want to go and listen to this 
so-called African rhythm in the middle of a monkey song because it's it's prominent and it's yeah it's 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 strange. It feels so good too. Great song. And everyone you're mentioning, I agree with. I would throw in. I it has that Oingo Boingo kind of yeah. feel from yeah. that era. Yeah, uh, one of my favorites. I agree. It it was a forward looking song. Yeah, it was taking elements that were available at the time and very forward in a lot of yeah. ways. In the same way that Last Train to Clarksville was. Seriously, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. but you know that we talked about like Bauhaus and uh, Peter Murphy and all that part where it kind of breaks down. He says, "I'm going to stay with you. No. I'm going to stick like glue." And it's almost like he's like a vampire saying, "I'm always going to be here. Now I'm in, and there's no getting rid of me." And I've heard it said by many people that that part of the song is so damn sexy to quote someone. So I will go along with that. Uh, I I definitely can see it, feel it, and hear it. And I think it's a, definitely a highlight of side one. You know, it the, that line is, in my opinion, one of the best vocal performances that Peter ever got on tape. I it. I, I, it's sexy is hard term to use with, you know, pe- people that you really kind of like idolized before adolescence. It, it, it never quite feels right, but yeah, but there are a lot of Torkies who would say, Oh no, no. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. sure. Yeah, it's, 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 it's each their own. Uh, I, but that line delivered that exact way by let's say Bowie. Oh yeah. I, I, I could then see the, the, the sexiness, you know, the, the music kind of strips away and he does that, slightly deeper voice and the notes blend uh, and um, the glissando into one another. Um, Yeah, no, yeah. I I hadn't thought sexy, but... (laughs) But you can see how it's a possibility. One of the things I've always talked about Mickey Dolenz and uh, Robin Zander, another great Mm -hmm. vocalist, is that they have the ability to act in a song. Yeah. Not every singer can inhabit a role in a song. Mickey has always been like uh, able to act within the song. So we almost feel what mm-hmm. the character in the song is feeling. And this is a time that we got to feel Peter Tork act in a song. He's not mm-hmm. just singing. There's there, this is, this is right up there as far as I'm concerned. And yeah, but, but you know, you got your anti Griselda and he had one character that you know the character the, the sort of schmucky character from the first season that he could do those songs and he can portray that character then he could do what seems earnest and i'm a big believer that songs are fiction so even things that are earnest seeming is there's a level of acting that that goes along to make the listener believe that this is earnest and then you're right and or and uh, the sequel earnest goes to camp no i just had to do that <laughs> Come on. hey Vern. and and then there's this you're right. This is a character. It, I, we keep coming. I keep. I think we're in concordance that yeah, there's a vampiric quality to it. But it is it is an interesting character, one that we've not seen on a monkey's record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And why the hell wasn't there like an eight minute dance remix with the proper you know take it apart and really do it upright? It's it. Please, Andrew. Do this. Get someone who can put a little stink on the funk and, and let's make it happen. New wave, 
dance music from the monkeys. This is it. This is it. This is it. <laughs> so uh, we both really love getting in. And uh, so far we, there's uh, some of the songs they're, they're great, but everything kind of gets lost a little bit. And I feel that Davy like goes to the well one too many times with the, I'm your heartthrob mm-hmm. and I'm still here. You know, that sort of thing. <laughs> Up next, we've got the second Monkey's writing credit, yeah, written by Davy Jones. I'll love you forever. I love you this year. I love you next year, and then forever. Your thoughts on this one? Uh, <laughs> um, I do like that acoustic guitar solo. Oh, it's uh, beautiful. It's a real beautiful. Apparently played by someone named Dan Sawyer. He was on the that that really big Osmond live album, the one that right after Crazy Horses. A great guitar solo. Uh, ah, he plays guitar on the Grease soundtrack. Interestingly enough, so does Tommy Tedesco. I, I'm obviously struggling. Uh, your impersonation of Davy there was was spot on. Um, maybe a little little sickly sweet. Uh, not a super fan of heart on the sleeve type confessional love lyrics. Uh, maybe maybe you could bring in some positivity about this one. Well, first off, we'll mention, as you said, Dan Sawyer plays lovely acoustic guitar and along with Lou Narklin and piano by Andy Cahan, just giving them their proper uh, credits. But there are people within the monkeys community who feel like they got shafted by, I want to be free Hmm. and that Davey is being a player. But to me, it was free love. It was part of the times and it's a young guy who didn't want to get tied down. He's saying, look, we can date, we can hang out, we can vodeo dough, we can do whatever, but I'm not ready for a serious relationship. And there are, people within the monkeys community who feel that Davey is being a player and Davey was always a player. Right. Or as Mike would say in the show, Davey means business. Right. So mm-hmm. I almost feel like the songs on this album, and this is in my own fan head canon or whatever, but it's almost like he's trying to make up for it. Huh? Like, see, I grew up and now I'm ready. For a relationship and I'm going to love you forever and I'm going to count on you and we're going to be together forever and walk along the sand holding hands and this time I'm serious so I almost feel like the 80s Davy, if you will the dad bod uh, mullet uh, Miami Vice looking Davy, mm-hmm. is almost making up for breaking the hearts back in the old day. So again, it's, it's nothing positive as far as I'm concerned. I, there's nothing wrong with any of the songs I've mentioned. It's just, I, it's just an interesting feeling that it seems like Davey a lot of the time would be almost rewriting. I want to be free to make it have a happier ending for the people that want the happier ending. Very interesting. And that's, I'm really glad that we are doing this because it, it, that might be my, entry point to this song that I, I kind of stubbornly been unable to access this song thinking about that uh, yeah I, I i definitely when i re-listen to this uh, you know later tonight 
uh, yeah, I, yeah, that definitely. Thanks for the insight on that. I, I, and I didn't even know that there was this blowback about, I mean, that's, 1966 that's that's some people still ain't over that jack (laughs) (laughs) okay but like you said songs are fiction songs are fiction people come on i mean that's this thing going on right now with the the pricing of the springsteen tickets and absolutely i would not disagree that Ticketmaster is out of out of control right and Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, let's regulate that industry or whatever, however you approach a solution. But be, uh, people are saying, oh, but he's betraying his every man. But, you know, it was relatively quiet when McCartney did the same thing, relatively quiet when the Stones, there's a little bit of grumbling. But the backlash for Springsteen, because his songs, which are as fictional as Eleanor Rigby or as fictional as Sympathy for the Devil, his songs are about situations that are more realistically blue collar. So what? Songs are fiction. Songs are fiction. Writing about a working man in a factory. Yes, working men in factories exist, but he's he's a he's a storyteller. It doesn't make that he's doing the dynamic pricing through Ticketmaster any more egregious than anyone else. Oh, it, yeah, it's been. Woo, I've been uh, trying to stay away from conversations like that. I I don't do controversy. I don't do controversy, but well. Just remember that anytime you find anything on the internet, and it's not to take away from the truth of a of an opinion, but since clickbait and oh, anger yeah. sells, it just does. I don't like it. You don't like it, but it's a reality. There's the old uh, saying, I think, therefore I am, whereas I believe in the modern age, if you're on the internet, the the new thought is... I complain, therefore I am. So, mm, right. <laughs> and that's why you're clicking on this. So, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm upset by this. Yeah, I, I hear you. Well, we should get on the Internet and complain about it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so, you know, since we've got our suntan oil on and we're sitting beside the pool here, it's time to get up and turn over the album. See how I did that? It's time to flip over the album. Yep. And this is the spot where if you're on vinyl, as they say, or vinyls, or vinyls, which, by the way, folks, the plural of uh, vinyl is vinyl. So just, just letting you know. But anyway, we, we now flip the oil. Uh, we flip the oil. We, we now flip the album. <laughs> we are drowning in metaphors here. <laughs> yes. We now flip the, the album over. And we've got every step of the way. Every step of the way. way, uh, Davey channeling his Liza Minnelli. uh, (laughs) Getting ready to rock it out of the park. Written by the great Ian Hunter Uh and Mark Clark. Just... I love this song except for one thing, and we'll get there. Guitar is uh, Lou Narklin and saxophone Jim Thompson, who he also played the saxophone on Secret Heart. So uh, great work on these tracks. This song sounds about as contemporary as you could get in 1987. Yeah. But there's some sins that are committed, and I don't know how to fix them. What are your thoughts on every step of the way? You know, I, I as... 
I, I thought I was onto something thinking, is this the only time since the first album that a monkey who closes the first side opens the first side? And no, that's not true. <laughs> I, saw, I saw, I was going through each album thinking, oh my God, I found a really cogent point here. This is going to, and no, not true. It happens on Monkeys Present and it happens on the first one. And after I found two that blew apart my theory, I said, oh, might as well stop looking now. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it is good. It is good. This is, this, it's not just, written by Ian Hunter. This is an Ian Hunter cover. Ian Hunter released this on his album, All the Good Ones Are Taken, in 1983. Mm -hmm. So this is not even written for the monkeys. How did this get to the monkeys? The guy who wrote it with Ian Hunter, uh, Mark Clark, was the bass player on the, Re the reunion tour in 86. So he was kind of connected to the, the band. And Mark Clark had played with Billy Squire and would go on to play with Michael Bolton. So that's how this gets to Davey and the Ian Hunter version. And I, I am wondering about what kind of stuck in your craw, but the, the Ian Hunter version sounds exactly like the Davey Jones version. Um, mm -hmm. It's good. It's worth listening to. Uh, I think Davey, I, I, I like Davey's voice a little bit more than, than Ian Hunter's. Um, but yeah, again, an, again, a, a person with real credibility, real British, you know, we did at Reckless Eric, we did Ian Hunter, uh, real credibility. Um, I, I think this song works pretty much. I think it's the best Davy song on the album, I'm thinking. Um, what do you not like about it? Do you want to, do you want to, oh. do you want to dance? Yeah. Take a chat. You know, it's like, yeah. calm down, man. <laughs> <laughs> I know that at the time we were seeing, I call it the video rule of three. You may not recognize what it is, but as soon as you hear it, you'll know what I'm talking about. We see an artist in a video and for some reason he's looking into a mirror and for some reason a guitar crashes into the mirror. Not hmm. once, not twice, but thrice I say. Yeah. Three times. The rule of three. In yeah. video we saw the rule of three all the time for, sure. for no reason. It's just it's like, hey, if you like this shot once or, you know, it costs money to throw a guitar through a mirror, we're going to show it to you in quick succession. Boom, boom, yeah. boom, boom. So I would have found a way to get rid of a couple lines. You sewed a button on my shirt one or jeans or whatever it is one mm -hmm. day. Uh, it just seems like such a stupid line and a mm -hmm. good way for David to get a bit of a co-write you know what i mean come right. up with anything else and the do you want to do you want to do you want to dance i know that it is referencing an old 60s song do you sure. want to dance yeah but just the anger in his uh voice it almost sounds angry whereas i mean davy can scream his ass off yeah davy's one of the best screamers he's right up there with bon scott which by the way you want to have your mind blown ACDC doing 99 pounds using the monkeys arrangement that Davey sung would have been a great song with Angus oh. and Bon Scott with that 70s line. Would have, I, th I thought you were going to say you have found a bootleg of, oh, oh yes. Oh, no, I wish I could. <laughs> I, I've even thought about finding a really good Bon Scott ACDC tribute band and paying them like a hundred bucks just to do this because I want to hear it so bad. Anyway. <laughs> oh, what a fun idea. But uh, so every step of the way, it's it those two spots kill it for me. All right. So 
Do You Want to Dance, was that... Do, now we're extemporaneous. There was a... Was it a Bette Midler movie? Yeah. Right? And a, and she a did cover? like a mellow version of it. Right. And that was a hit, right? Yep. Was that before 87 or after? I don't know. I'm because if that was... With. Internet. If that was in the the air and it wasn't him just quoting a 60s song, but quoting a 60s song that had recently been contemporized, uh, you know, yeah, no, I, that never really, the, uh, Davey doing that, I'm, I'm okay with that, but he, there may be some anger and some resentment, yeah. As far as the, the fans that were wanting Davey to be more of a monogamist, if, if that's who he is, that angry guy screaming at the girl, do you want to dance? Um, maybe, maybe being a monogamist is not the best choice, being in a long-term relationship with that character. I just wish that he would have even sang the lyric slightly different. But again, it's inherently in the original version as well. It, it, it's pretty much a translation of yeah. what Ian Hunter did. Actually, I yeah. think the production on Ian Hunter's version is horrible. Yeah. It it sounds like an afterthought. Like everything's like, oh, well, I guess I'll just put this on the album. It, 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 there, there's The Monkey's version is better produced. Yes, for sure. So uh, anyway. I, I, don't, I don't remember if Ian Hunter still had major label. I mean, not that Rhino, but yeah, I wonder what, I don't know all that much about Ian Hunter. He kind of drops off my... Radar, I know he's, yeah, I know he's still yeah. making records, and I listen to any old timer, whether they're uh, I'm a fan or not. When they release something new, I always want to hear, like I said earlier in this conversation, the continuing right. story of of rock, of uh, this sort of phenomenal thing that I got to see the middle and end of, and you got to see a little bit more of. Uh, it's 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 ending, and you know I I love the ending of stories, and I listen to every. I'm not that I listen necessarily to a whole Ian Under album at this point, but when the single comes out for the new whatever, I will always put it on and I will listen carefully. And, and, and I'm always hoping to be turned on to an artist that just, you know, like uh, whatever brought you to the dance in the first place. You, you want to find that again. Exactly. Yeah, I know. And that's a, that's a fool's errand because you'll never, you know, you'll never be as engrossed with something as you were when you were 12 or 13 and first discovering it. But, uh, yeah, you do want to rekindle that, you know, talking about, you know, an addiction. Like if I could reapproach music and feel for it, what I did at 13 or 14, woo, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, it still happens. Like right now I'm totally into the darkness, uh, yeah. band from England and, I. Oh, I'm just in love. It's like I'm 14 again, and you don't yeah. normally get that yeah. later in life. So I'm thrilled to have it. So yeah, just get yeah. out of my way, man. No apologies. <laughs> I'm loving it. Uh, now this song, "Every Step of the Way," was the second video, and it had to be for political reasons within the band that Davey got his turn up at bat next, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, the same thing happened with the that was then, this is now. Then instead of like doing kicks or any time, any place, which any time, any place would have been the smart move to make yeah. if you wanted to proceed with a future towards the band. But instead, they released Daydream Believer with a new mix uh, with updated drums, if you will. Oh, really? And oh, yeah. it that, 
yes, it was good to remind people that the, this is the band that you're seeing on MTV here, but it also stopped them from forward momentum. So, uh, so in this same step, every step of the way, in, in this same step, uh, every step of the way was Davies up to bat. And I think that either getting in or she's moving in with Rico, if we're going to have to pick another band or a member of the band to feature instead of Mickey on lead vocals would have been the smarter thing. I, I don't think either of those songs, I, I mean, I mean, if you had to do another member of the band, yeah, I guess so. I mean, the smarter thing would have been just to give Mickey another single or for the other guys to be more Yeah, but proactive. there's no way that Mr. Jones, who we love dearly, is going to yeah. say, wait a second, mate, you you might be the voice, but I'm the face of the monkeys. So yeah, I know. I I've know. got my I... mullet and I paid for it. We're going to use it. So <laughs> <laughs> You know, when you go through Sandoval's book, I mean, that's you running into this over and over and over again before the monkeys even form. <laughs> before they form, Davey already has some, uh, you know, kid brother complex or something about other people. It's, yeah. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, the first voice we heard on a monkeys song. If you were listening to AM radio or FM radio back then, it was Last Train to Clarksville. You heard sure. that before you saw the monkeys. Yeah. Then when you saw the monkeys, the face is Davy. I mean, if you watch the first opening bit of the first season, the first face you see is Davy Jones. Yeah. The first voice you hear is Mickey Dolenz. Yeah. But you see Davy a lot more in that opening than you see everyone else. Yeah. So he was the face, Mickey was the voice, and thankfully they all went above their pay grade and their allotted stations, right? That's one oh, of the yeah. reasons we're still talking about the monkeys. So, again, I think that politically they had to go with a Davy track, and I would have went, she's moving with Rico, and we'll get there, but here we are. So every step of the way, kicking off side two. Our next song is... Don't Bring Me Down, written by the one, the only, of the Shondells uh, family, is Tommy James, a man who should need no introduction to anyone who loves music and music of the 60s as well. Don't bring me down. Uh, what are your thoughts on this one? You know, again, what a year Tommy James was having. I mean, mm -hmm. he, a couple couple years earlier, the Crimson and Clover with Joan Jett, then that incredibly huge Tiffany and and Billy Idol. I mean, it was just a good time for Tommy James. Great song. Oh my goodness, this. I, I have some production quabbles, uh, quibbles. Me the, too. The the snare is so loud, it, and it's just relentless. It, you know, snares generally belong on beats two and four, and boy, does this one hammer that point home. You know, once that song stops, you hear that loud, loud snare stealing all the air from your room uh, every two beats. It's it's a lot, but uh, Mickey sounds great on on "Don't Bring Me Down." There's this. I, lately, or I don't know, 10, I, I don't know, 
since Pool It was released, there was a Tommy James sort of gray market release of demos, songwriting demos. And so mm -hmm. you could now hear on YouTube his version of this song. And so it's, it's you know, on a cassette and it's a little hissy. It wasn't ever meant for release. Uh, sounds good, though. It, it could have been. It, it, it's a, this one feels like a 60s song. This one is really open to more interpretation. Um, and it has that really great synth horn part of the sort of galloping ba -ba -da -da -ba -da -da -ba -da -da kind of synth part that's uh, mm -hmm. in the bridges. Great harmonies. Love, love this song. Um, th this whole wide world should have been the first single. Then this, then Heart and Soul, uh, Heart and Soul, and then Davy would have quit. But you know, it's like there was no follow up for another ten years. So what would it have mattered? Um, yeah, I I do love this song. I, the 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 snare is a bit much, and 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 it's a real uh, impedance. Uh, it really interferes with being able to want to play this song. If you, you make a little set, and I, and I know you like to, to collect vinyl or CDs, I like to listen on digital. I have all my Same songs here. loaded on FLAC, so I play from my computer or I play from Spotify, and I do like making sets. And the song is so good, but you can't really put it in a set anywhere without all of a sudden that snare drum takes over. You, you know, you got to turn it down, and it's 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 a real shame. A, a a mellower mix on this song, and I like to think that by '87, this thing was probably recorded on 60 tracks. I'm sure you could just pull down the snare a bit, keep everything. Uh, it, it really does mar the song to the point it might be a, a fatal wound, uh, unfortunately, for how much I can come back to the song. It's it's just so harsh. I hate saying that. Well, I'm right along with you, except on that keyboard part as well. I think that as well as it's done, it's too abrasive. Mm. Uh, and the the repetitive guitar, because at this point we're able to copy and paste. Mm-hmm you get the real feeling that that's a copy and paste guitar bit. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's no real, there's no real performance going on at some point in this yeah. song and you feel it and it takes me out of it. It makes me not have any interest in it. I would have rather had that song played, uh, with more human heartbeat and fingers, you know what I mean? As yeah, opposed yeah, yeah. to, okay, we've got this bit. We're going to sample it and we're going to just play this bit over and over and over again. And it just sounds like the record's almost skipping, even though it's not. Yeah. I, it's interesting. You don't like that synth horn part. Would you have preferred, is it, is it just the timbre of it? And it just, it's a little shrill. It's too abrasive like yeah. Davies. Uh, uh -huh. You know, it's, it's almost the same sound as far as I'm concerned. So mellow maybe, off the pedal a little bit, maybe real, real trumpets or something warmer. Well, even a synth would have worked just nothing that it sounds like it's saturated up in the mix a bit too much. Like it's too, it's too omnipresent. It's too forceful. Yeah. See, I, I always have this, this, this fantasy where you take music from like the high eighties, whether it's, it's this album or press to play and you take all the synths, and you decide, because synths do a couple of things. They're either going to sound like horns, organs, mallets. You replace. You get you get to choose one. 
you're going to replace your synths, and if you have multiple synth lines, you get one. You're going to either put them on a marimba, on a on a Hammond B3 with a Leslie, or uh, or or a horn section for your pad stuff, right. and, and and go back in, replace the drums, and you can keep basically everything else. I think. Um, you know, take some of the verbs off the voices. Uh, oh, that's my that's my dream. My dream project is replace re- the synth and s- reconstitute it. My yeah, my dream is rehabilitating Press to Play, McCartney's album from '86. Oh, uh, that that would be interesting. That that that's that's a, and some people have gone in and rehabilitate. Uh, Pink Floyd recently did a momentary lapse of reason and kind of desynthed some of it. I know. Bill, uh, Dylan changed out the instruments on Street Legal. It's just a muddy, you know. I, I'm okay with that. The the original will exist. I, you know. Yeah, we're anyway. not pulling a George Lucas here. As long as you're not pulling a George Lucas, right? So our next song that I feel would have wound up on Miami Vice's soundtrack. Me too. Had it not had the name Monkeys attached to it. This is such a Crockett and Tubbs mm-hmm. uh, going through the night. It is Miami Vice, uh, 100% mm-hmm. to the nth degree. It's a great song, mm-hmm. but it's not exciting on a Monkeys album for me. Elliot, what are your thoughts on Midnight from Pull It with Mickey Dolans on lead vocals? Um, yeah, so this is written by John David. Uh, who doesn't have, he wrote a hit for Cliff Richard and Phil Everly. It was a duet, but didn't do anything here. It was number nine in the UK. I, I think it's the most interesting lyric on the album, and it's the darkest lyric. There's Is there a drug deal going on? Something's going on in the shadows of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's dark and it's midnight as the, as the title lets you know, very much Miami vice kind That's of That's also, I feel the time that the shit's going down, whatever's happening right. is at midnight. Right. And, and, and so, okay, I, I'm, I'm, I'm liking the lyric, you know, w- w- what this album really misses is, and we, we never really get again, um, is Nesmith's sort of acerbic wordplay and psychedelic poetry you know these songs are kind of just straightforward love songs and this one differs this one is is darker and it doesn't have the 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 the, the fun and the the whimsy of a, of a nesmith song but i could see him kind of approving on these lyrics because they have something to say that's a little murkier but uh yeah it doesn't really feel like it belongs on a monkey's album it feels you know the solo roger daltrey album under a raging moon yes 85 or so after the fire was on there mm-hmm. if this i think daltrey could have really sung the hell out of this song this this seems more in his wheelhouse um obviously that's just fantasy what they fantasy baseball is that what that's called um yeah. fantasy football or whatever uh yeah i you know but fantasy producing Right, I, I don't. It's not a not a terrible song. I'm I'm okay with Midnight. I'm I'm okay with it. It doesn't fit. It doesn't fit what follows. It doesn't fit what preceded. 
How was this not the album closer? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right, because it doesn't fit in the sequence anywhere. You know, or, or at least it could have closed side one. Uh, yeah. Something. Yeah, it's it's strange, strange placement. Yeah. And speaking of strange, one of the most controversial songs in the Monkees catalog. Yep. At track 10, she's moving in with Rico. She's moving in with Rico, bass by Dave Sutton, guitar by Lou Nacklin, written by... Eddie Howell. Eddie Howell, that's right. He's our second Howell, by the way. Our first song was... Oh, lovey. Yeah, Simon Byrne and Andrew Howell wrote Heart and Soul, and Eddie Howell wrote She's Moving In With Rico. Right. So we've got a Howl by any name, right? A Howl by any other name. Anyway. Lovey. Oh, lover. Which, you know... Let me explain something to you that how I've come to understand things in pop culture. There was a time when the discussion was Ginger or Marianne. I am now old enough that <laughs> Mrs. Howell is in that running at this point. But when I was young, she wasn't. Now she's like looking pretty, pretty good. So there you go. <laughs> All right. That's when you know that you have ma matured, right? <laughs> so speaking of matured it, she's moving in with rico this song gets so much crap and i think that it it it's a hit single seriously that was not how it worked out but you give this song to gloria estefan and miami sound machine you got a top 10 hit <sighs> well i I, I will agree that that's probably the best choice gloria estefan yeah, you know, you know, she often gets minimized in in the role that she played in the late '80s. Coming from, you know, there's 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 her, there's Sheila E. Anyway, it's an interesting connection. Um, uh, yeah, I, one of the things is it's got. For those of you that don't know, it's it's really. It's, first of all, the song is way too fast, and the drums again are too loud. That's those my those are my complaints. Um, Strange lyrics. Um, it cannot decide which world music it wants to be. There's parts of it that feel like it's Calypso. There are parts that feel reggae, but way too fast. There are parts that feel just generic Caribbean. Uh, and then there's timbales playing, which don't necessarily belong in reggae. It's just like, oh, throw world music elements at this as though we and were see what sticks and see what sticks and then we'll do all of it 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 doesn't have tin pans but you could easily imagine it had pans on it and, and that is fun i guess it's really oh it's it's you know a, a little bit from here a little bit from there that's fine who says you can't use timbales on a reggae song well, well fine, technically sure. this is the same thing that getting in does it's it takes these diverse elements and makes something wonderful out of it. Uh, whether it yeah. does with Rico, that's depending on the, <laughs> you know, your mileage may vary, right? I think that the quickest way to redeem this song is through the power of MTV, and by that I mean video. Imagine this being a single release with a video, and you've got Davey 
talking to this girl and she announces that she's moving in with Rico. And now he's flipping out. And can you help me move? And now we have a romp in which Peter, Davy, and Mickey help her move her stuff off the truck, up the steps. And we see things like where Peter's carrying one half of the uh, couch and mm-hmm. it's long and strung out. And Davy's here at this end and it goes a little bit more. Mickey's sitting in the middle. And then you see Davy sitting there again and Peter's carrying it on the other side. Right. You get right. that? So you could do things and fast cuts of them like picking up a box and then someone bringing the box back downstairs. Just, oh, it's a hilarious comedy of errors. The monkeys are doing a romp. And then at the end, they meet Rico and it turns out that she's a girl and Davy's relieved until he realizes, um, they are into one another. <laughs> so at mm. first he's relieved. <laughs> it turns out, uh, I guess she really did just want to be my friend. Cause that's what it says in the song. Yeah. She said she always wanted to be my friend. What can I say? I guess this is the end. So Davy's in the unenviable position of wanting someone that doesn't really want him. That's right. a, quite a uh, regressive statement in 1987. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I think had we got to see that Rico would have been uh, a girl. Yeah. Some people could have said, oh, well, there's still a chance. And other people have said, there's no way. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it would have been an excuse for a fun romp. And I think we all would have looked differently at this song because we would have seen the guys doing what they do so well on the TV show. Have yeah. a fun romp with a fun song. And that's something we didn't really get to have as much as we should have. Yeah, I, I, mean, I just I, I, I don't see the airplay potential in this one. Uh, it's. Well, that would only be because of the video. Only because of the video. Yeah, the yeah, the video would transcend the the the, the song and, and become... that happened a lot oh, sure. during uh the eighties. You know, there were songs that we fell in love with because we dug the video. Oh oh yeah, there's there's so many just kind of oddball songs like She Blinded Me with Science or something that probably wouldn't have stood on its own without a without a video. I yeah the, there's just some lyrical issues with she's moving in with Rico. I mean, Rico's everybody's hero, according to the lyric, but at the same time, Davey refers to him as a stranger. And yeah. I, I, I do struggle with that. I, I know it's largely despised, this song. Um, and again, the production is really harsh and does make it inaccessible. The, the, the snare drum is really, really loud again. And the music is too fast. I'm not in opposition to fast music, but in general, it works for rock music and jazz. But when you're doing world rhythms and there's an emphasis on the upbeats and you just do them really, really fast, it's I, I, it's not quite ska. It, I, I don't think it knows what it wants to be rhythmically. Yeah, it, the, the ska bit is there. And yeah. that's one of the things I like about it, though. Can, can I just tell you something about Eddie Howell. He has a song that everybody should know. It is shocking to me. So he was in playing in a pub in, in 75 and in walk Freddie Mercury and Brian May. And they hear his song uh, called Man from Manhattan. He's just sitting acoustic playing it at, at a pub. Freddie comes up to him and says, I'd love to produce that for you. Send me a demo. 
He sends a demo. Freddie Mercury then spends the next week writing vocal parts, very Freddie Mercury, piano parts, and produced this song for him. Ken, it is a Queen song that nobody knows. It must be heard to be believed. Freddie Mercury is so present doing the Night at the Opera type vocals. Brian May with his overdubbed guitar symphony. It is absolutely, people listening to this, if you want another Queen song, you must go find Man from Manhattan. This thing should have been a huge hit. He plays it on top of the pops with that Queen arrangement. And then the British Musicians Union found that Mercury paid a non-union bass player on the session and that it killed the song. It had a stall. It was banned from everything and it killed poor Eddie Howell's chance there. He kind of has another small British hit in 80. And then I do not know how he comes up with She's Moving in with Rico. I do not. He, he does not seem to have a long career, but this man from Manhattan, this should have been played on classic rock. It's it's like Killer Queen. It's it's whimsical like that. It it is so Queen. And even Eddie Howell's voice. It's like one of the Brian May Queen songs. So if you've taken nothing, Monster Munch is one of the cutest children's album, and there is a bonus Queen song that is lying there in plain view, in plain sight, and it it's so cool to hear uh, Freddie Mercury. Uh, it's a full production. It's not just them jamming on a Libra and Stoller song. It, it, it's so cool. So a great lost Queen-ish sound song mm -hmm. by Eddie Howe, and the name of it is? Man from Manhattan. So Man from Manhattan from Eddie Howe. So you've got, you've got some, some joy to bring to your ears. So there you go. <laughs> Speaking of joy, since you went away. Because the plans have grown. Track 11, Since You Went Away, written by... Michael Levine. Michael Levine, yes. And uh, he's uh, a long list of stuff that he's done. <sighs> uh, this is a, a great song in many ways, but uh, I love the fact that it's it's a song about a breakup, but a happy one. You don't see that very often. Ken. It's a happy breakup song. It's the narrator from She's Moving In With Rico. He sat and pondered on it. And now, a week later, he's thrilled that Since You Went Away. Yes. The Since You Went Away is such a whimsical lyric. Since you've gone, the dogs have come back. I've got friends who mean what they say and talk about a little shade. Uh, yeah, it's just all these wonderful things that have happened since the the partner, let's say the girl, since the girl went away. His life is infinitely better and he's happier. And it's not like there's no twist at the end of the song. Oh, please come back. I'm just kidding. It's oh, it is such a great concept lyrically. And again, like the the other two songs where you need a key to my heart and then I'm getting into your heart. These two. Oh, no, don't leave. She's leaving me. She's gone off with Rico. Now what am I going to do? And then, you know what? <laughs> you screw her. I'm, I'm better off now. It's, these, it's a great pair. These two songs belong together. To me, it redeems some of the flaws that she's moving in with Rico. Uh, and, and Peter sounds great here. It's, it's a silly vocal. It's a lot of, lot of fun. 
It reminds me of something that should have been in the 70s. Mm. But with uh, new wave production. Oh, yeah. Well, there is. There's a there's a new Monks version that Peter did in the early 80s mm-hmm. of, of this one. And, and and it works. I think I like this production a little bit better. So Michael Levine wrote this when he was 17. He also wrote uh, Stranger Things Have Happened for, for Peter. Levine wrote this when he was 17. And man, he, so he was uh, one of these great high-level uh, concert violinist, classical violinist. He's, he's one of the greats. And he ends up having a great career as principal violinist on like a Hans Zimmer scores and Dark Knight. And he's really well entrenched in the, in the film production company now. He's really, really successful. And he got this song to Peter when he was 17 and 81 or so. Intervening, though, before this album, uh, he was, you know, trying to sell his songs to people making commercials. And uh, his songs were a little out there, like this one, Since You Went Away. And one company that, that hires musicians to write jingles took a chance with him. And they gave him this They task. took a chance, baby, take a chance? <laughs> Touch a chance. They said, they gave him this unusual task. They said, oh, we just created the perfect campaign for Kit Kat chocolates. So what we need you to do, because they promised their client multiple song choices, what we need you to do is write an inferior song for Kit Kat, because the one we did, we know we're going with it. Screw what the, you know, what Kit Kat wants. We know we're going with this. In fact, we put $100,000. We got Dr. John to do a version of it. We got Phoebe Snow to do a version. We've already spent a hundred grand because it's a great song. So Michael Levine goes home and he writes the give me a break give me a the kit kat bar the the one that ends up the you know the kit kat song to this day so he submits it and it's designed to fail because they'd already put money into this other uh campaign um but every single test people like the michael levine version and then they would te- that well that's a fluke let's test it with another audience let's test it with an audience in omaha let's test it with an audience in new york every group this song tested better tested better and then the client is the one that chose this song so michael levine who wrote this monkey song when he was 17 ends up writing one of the catchiest earworms of all time in fact the university of cincinnati said there were three earworms in america uh in 2003 their study was we will rock you another queen reference two in a row here we will rock you is the number one earworm in america in 2003 ymca and then give me a break. The Kit Kat bar theme is the thing that is stuck in people's heads in 2003. So a crazy career for Michael Levine. Um, and this is just kind of happening in the middle of the whole Kit Kat drama. Uh, and then he goes on to work with Hans Zimmer and in scores that everybody knows when you hear a violin do something dramatic, it's quite likely Michael Levine. It's possible that it's Michael Levine doing it. So you are still hearing Michael Levine virtually every single time you put on a big budget movie. Yep. Very true. And I love the lyrics. I cannot get to them right now, but there's that part where it says, I was basically told that I'm going to be alone if I don't have someone in my life, but I'm elated. Mm -hmm. And sadly, one of the things that I love, hate about 
music and even in the beloved Beatles, I feel that the Beatles set me up for failure in life mm-hmm. because there's too many happy endings in their songs that don't mm-hmm. often work out to be happy endings, right? So yeah. as much as I look at the at the Beatles as gospel, right? Like that's that's my that's my gospel, that's my gospel music, that's my my hymns of the universe is the yeah. Beatles. But a lot of their lyrics turn out to not ring true, even though it's often the most truth I've found in lyrics. So, yeah. but love, it has to be about self. It cannot be about waiting for another person to come on in and fix your life or turn the lights on in your life or give you the meaning. Your meaning should come from your own purpose. And it's nice to have a pop song that's not all about how crushed you're going to be if someone does not come along and complete you instantly. And it's weird because... As a teen, I was taught that there was someone out there who would have this other piece of the puzzle that would make sense of what I am instead of me trying to make sense out of who I am and what I am and what I want to be. So I'm glad to see a song that is not on that tip, if you will. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. I, I uh, often struggle. And, and you hear this in, in pop, you hear it in rock, you don't hear it. Yeah, you, you pretty much hear it everywhere. Uh, now that I have you, girl, everything is great. My world is better. And it's just, it's so empty. And when a song breaks through, you know, that incredible Ariana Grande song from, I don't know, four or five years ago, Thank You Next. Uh, there's breakup songs, where it's, which are pretty much screw you songs. And then there's, oh, I need you songs. And I'm madly in love with you song. In this one, in Thank You Next, she she manages to tell a story that I don't think's ever been told. And that's going through all of her exes and saying, thank you. Thank you for what you, you gave me. The, the breakup may have sucked or whatever. But I look back at this and I was a different person then and I'm better than I am now. There are so many other stories we could be talking about in uh, romantic relationships and not just the codependent uh, I am now complete now that I have you. I do think that's hogwash and I do think it is damaging um, to the to people. It, it, it's, it's not accurate. Uh, th- that self-determination and that self, that sense of ego is really, really important thing to develop on your own independently or with a pet, or with your hobby, or with your guitar, or whatever, whatever it is, you're never really alone, uh, as long as you could activate these other parts of your mind and consciousness. Um, but yeah, I think, it's, I think it's garbage. And so I love a song like this, that I'm now better off without you. I, I, because it's... And it's not necessarily mean. No, no, no. And it's probably so true. And there are probably people that are stuck in loveless relationships that would be better off, but they can't, they can't, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's problematic. I mean, for God's sakes, the flowers even are able to bloom again. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, let's not limit our criticism to, to songs because this is every single movie in the eighties and beyond. And, you know, the seventies gave us movies that were much darker, but starting in the eighties, movies become very much about completing. And then that whole rom-com morass of films in the 90s uh yeah it's it's a troubling message and it 
I don't need it. I, I don't like it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not too judgy about music. I am judgy about the production of music and uh, and the lyrical content that does can, can drive me crazy. But I thank you for, for bringing that up. I, I do agree. I think that's that's a that's a damaging message that you are an incomplete part of in, unless you're partnered or you are somehow damaged or you're not living life to the fullest. I, I, I don't I don't believe that. And I don't believe that's the only message we, we, we send out about love. And I think, I, you know, the, there's a lot of that in Beatles, but uh, there's, there's, there's the darker side too. But, you know, I think about uh, where McCartney on McCartney 3, his, his most recent album, um, the song Deep, Deep Feeling, which is like kind of the centerpiece. And it's this long meditative piece that's kind of still... And at the end, it's it's this kind of chant. And again, we were talking about three against two. He has this three against two rhythm going on, and it's kind of hypnotic. And he says, talking about love, sometimes I wish it would stay, and sometimes I wish it would go away. Um, and he's talking about the kind of the overwhelming feeling that he has associated with love. And I, I think that's an interesting point of view. Um, talking about just kind of the obsessiveness that happens uh, in in romantic relationships and the, and the idea of making sure you have a romantic relationship. I, I often wonder when I see these movies or I look at human beings in real life and online, is falling in love the goal or is the goal to finally end the pursuit of falling in love? Um, which I, which are obviously different things. Like, oh, I don't want that gnawing on the back of my in the back of my head. I'm supposed to be partnered up with this person. And that is what drives a person to looking for partnership more than the desire to be in love. I just oh, I just want to end this this dark thought that I'm supposed to be in love, that I'm incomplete without that. Well, as an old bastard, I want to pass this along to anybody who cares. Uh, but I wish that I could tell this to my younger self that the best way to find someone is to find completion within yourself. Then when somebody who has hopefully done the same work and you bump into each other, that's when the real deal can happen. And um, until then you're just uh, trying to stop a leak that there's mm -hmm. no fix for. So, love yourself the we've been told that too in song the greatest love of all is learning to love yourself right it's so true so from older ken to younger ken and to you if you wish to have it uh, again the beauty of this is here is you know uh, i you know i don't think music is disposable or throwawayable but here is a song that for all intents and purposes, people that have listened to this album that didn't like it kind of discarded the song and threw it away. And, and I get that. I hear an album and then I don't go into the nitty gritty. But I think this, Unless I think there's a Unless it's the nitty gritty dirt band. You have no choice then. <laughs> and then you're always there. Uh, I think there's, a, uh, you know, I don't know if this was the valuable conversation that could, that could be had, but, you know, the building blocks for a very valuable conversation about relationships can be in this quote unquote throwaway song buried at the end of Pull It uh, by not 
one of the main lead vocalists of the band. And it probably stimulated the most cogent, um, meaningful discussion that we had on the whole album. So that says something. Yeah, that does say something. And I, and I, and I hope people go back to this album and, and maybe we're just tripping <laughs> say what? those guys are full of it. Oh, we, we definitely are. You know, we're just, we're just having a conversation here. You're, you're sitting at the table with us. So up next is counting on you. And I'm counting on you. Counting on you, rounding out the album with acoustic guitar from Dan Sawyer once again. Written by Alan Green, and there's a bit of monkeying around with Alan Green. Mm -hmm. He's worked with so many people. He worked with two people that have a lot in common, Dudley Moore and Davy Jones. So, I mean, Davy Jones could have played Dudley Moore, or Dudley Moore could have played Dudley... Anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> They're kind of interchangeable in some ways, just like Anthony Newley and Davy Jones are interchangeable at some point, right? So, uh, and that's not a cut down of Davy or anybody. It's just that you find things that go here and go there and similarities, right? Davy actually picked this guy up in 1979 to be part of Davy Jones's backup band. And he eventually wrote some songs with uh, Davy Jones. One of them is uh, You'll Soon Be 16, Number One, and Free, and this song as well. So, you know, Davy and he worked together quite a bit. He's had another career and another name as Arian Day. So check him out if you wish. But kind of sets the stage as to how this song might have wound up on the album. He is this, and this is the second, it's not quite nepotism, but this is the second time that a band member was used and both times was at Davy Jones's insistence. So I wonder if he was super loyal to the musicians he was comfortable with, or if there was a way of, if you're in good with Davy, then you're going to get a songwriting credit on an album. And that's a, that's a big deal. Remember he had done that, with Mark Clark, the Ian Hunter song, and Mark Clark was in the Monkees touring band, and then Arlen Day was in the Davy Jones touring band, uh, and so much so that Davy and him, he's the co-writer on Davy's autobiography from 87, mm-hmm. They Made a Monkey Out of Me. So he's kind of in on, you know, entrenched in Monkees culture by 87. Uh, I do like songs that count. <laughs> It is something I, I I do go for, and this one has some puns, which I like, and then I especially love, and this is absolutely just unique to me, I especially love numbers out of order in song. Um, it just, it messes around with your expectation, mm-hmm. sets you off balance. I, I heard that there are I, I, I believe it's relatively true. You know, music obviously creates a lot of dopamine and a lot of happiness for people. But the two greatest dopamine releases in music is when you can predict something. Um, you know, you got a jolt of, oh, I got that right. I knew the chorus was coming or I knew it was going to be that note. And then you feel pretty good about that. And also 
when you don't see it coming. Yeah. When something completely surprises you, those are the two places where you really get rewarded with neurochemicals, neurotransmitters, um, big time in music. And so the easiest way to do that is sing numbers out of order. And so counting on you, you could, you know, one, one of the lyrics is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Tentatively, you put up the signs. I like that little pun there with the 10. But the third verse, he sings flight 681 gate 42 at 715. I feel 10 feet tall knowing you care after all. That's a great line. It, you know, a bit of mind screwery. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter that it's flight 681 or that it's at gate 42, but we're just playing around with the expectation that there's going to be numbers and it's sung in the same rhythm that the other numbers uh, ascending and descending were, were sung. Um, it's a great thing what happens. I mean, it's it's just this kind of madness that, whoa, these numbers are out of order. Ow. And it kind of hurts for a second. And then like, whoa, what were those numbers? And you you try to grasp onto it. That's my favorite part of the song. I think it's a lovely song, actually. Um, it's, it's Davies' tamest vocal. You were talking before about the shrill and the screaming and it doesn't necessarily always work. This is his tamest vocal. It's a it's a tame, calm production. Um, uh, you know, after Rico and after the uh, uh, the Ian Hunter song, yeah, this this is probably Davy's highlight. I, I think it's it's a really lovely song. Um, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, going off what you said about how your mind expects to hear a certain thing, a song that you and I both love, The Middle. Oh, yeah, yeah. That part where you go, it's going to take some, that's when it comes in. It uh-huh. should be in your, if you're sitting down and write a song, you would have had it be just a little bit before that so that right. they could sing off of it. But instead, and then once your mind gets used to hearing it, it feels right. But the first time you hear it, it feels like, did the record skip? Is mm-hmm. this, you know, and it, it builds an energy that you otherwise would not have had. Um, sadly, I'm usually asleep by this point of the album. Oh, no. It's got nothing to do with the song. It's just the song. The album's too long. We've went to the well one too many times with the slow song for Davey. Yeah. And it's a victim of that. Yeah. Taking the song by itself, it sounds like something I've never heard before because yeah. I'm hearing it separate from the collective work of art that is Pull It. So that is really good. It's not a bad song. It's just one of too many. Yeah, I I, I agree. It, it does. The album does start for me. I, I think you were mentioning that it's beginning to lag at the end of side one. I feel it. I think the... Side to Midnight, the the Miami Vice one, into mo- she's moving in with Rico. That's a tough moment for me. And then it is enlivened with the silly Peter Tork song, and then counting. I, yeah, it, and it's not even that long an album. It's almost like a deflated balloon. Yeah, yeah, it it does lose some steam or some lift. Uh, the album's only forty two minutes. Like, can you imagine ten years later, and it's the CD era where Every album is 75 minutes. Right. Back when they would put stickers on this album. This album is almost 80 minutes long. It's yeah. like, yeah, well, shit, if you <laughs> spread it out, doesn't stop smelling like shit. You know, <laughs> if it's really good, that's great. 
we've got a winner. If not, we've got a problem. So, but it, again, it's not that the song is bad, but I feel like either Midnight or Counting on You should have been the end of the album. And I'm not saying that she's moving with Rico and since you went away shouldn't have happened. They just should have been pushed up a little bit higher and bring the energy down and out. Yeah. I'm looking at the list right now. I, you know, I definitely would have scratched out. I'll love you forever. So Again, I would put, it, it's too slow. It, I, it's, I would put counting on you there. And then moving in with Rico. And since you went away, those two are up of a pair. So I would move midnight down to slot six on side two, which would be 11, right? Yeah. That would make it 11. And then, like you said, that was then this is now would be, you know, you could squeeze that in or something else. Uh, Even that helps, but it almost feels like the album's just too long and too repetitive. And for an album that is pull it and fun, it gets a little too melancholy at times. Yeah. Yeah. Not saying, I mean, there's some ways that that can work, right? You're going to have like a Harry Nielsen written song on an album that sounds all happy, but it's very sad. Or Brian Wilson, for example, you know. So it can be done, and it is done, but it's about placement. I'm not quite sure what the team was thinking, you know. Oh, they're in a pool. It'll be it'll be fun. We know those guys. They're in a pool. I Yeah, that this is what probably doomed it to failure. Like we were saying, tons of 60s artists were having success. You call it pool it, and then you've got some bummer songs on there. Uh, or Midnight, which doesn't is not a bummer necessarily, but it doesn't tie into the pool theme. It's dark, kind of inner city alleyway drug dealer, whatever it is that's happening yeah. in that song. Crockett and Tubbs are on the shore waiting for the boat to come in. Some shit's going to go down, man. <laughs> this is not a sitting around the pool. I, why they got stuck on that concept, how that happened... I don't know. I don't remember if I ever did know. It's 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 what doomed it here. But having said that, I'm glad to have it. Absolutely. I think the album works quite well. I listened to it several times during the during lockdown and I thought, oh, this is so much more fun than I remembered. Um and you know, some songs really jumped out that I just didn't have time for as a 13-year-old. They were just there's nothing particularly sophisticated about any of these, but uh, Secret Heart was maybe a little sophisticated and Midnight was a little slick that I really had an appreciation for as a middle-aged man that I didn't have at 13. Yeah, I think it aged pretty pretty well. and It, and it aged better than it should have. Absolutely. It aged better than the things that might have been more successful, like Kokomo. And, you know, Kokomo's fine, but you know, Kokomo or We Built the City, those have aged in a way where they're seen as real low points in those bands' career. This was initially seen as a low point in this band's career, but in retrospect, it's 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 solid. And back then, an album was an excuse to tour, so it was a success in that sense. Well, sure, the tours were a success. I, I think this works better than changes, um, which might be controversial to say. And I think it works a lot better than justice, but. (laughs) There are some people who are screaming right now and other people saying, (laughs) yep. So you're again, your mileage will vary. 
Yeah. We're, we're going to wrap up our discussion here. I want to thank you for listening today and uh, thank you for being the other guest on the show today. You, the listener, uh, you are the other part of it. Otherwise, we are just a tree falling in a forest, right? Did we even make a sound if you're not here? Uh, Elliot, I would like to thank you for coming on. We don't do enough talking. I feel you and I. Uh, you are That's you are a, a long lost friend that I swear that we went to different schools together. <laughs> and you are somebody that I, a soul whose wisdom I enjoy and humor I enjoy. And you are one of my favorite people. And I love it when we interact. Uh, we just don't do it enough. But I thought, you know, let's do it. Let's do it uh, on the podcast. So here we are. An old-fashioned Ken Mills podcast. That's right. So here we are. It felt like a privilege to be here. I was really fun to put together these notes. Great to have a conversation with you. I like chatting with you. I like the energy you promote out on Facebook. Uh, I, I really do like the sort of ecosystem you've created. Uh, it's it's really inclusive and you never quite know what you're going to get. you got some recurring themes which are fun to tap into. Uh, you let me babble a lot. I... I, I uh, have a need to write big paragraphs when uh, when it's, when one single sentence will do. You can count on a paragraph from me. I can count on you, right? I'm counting on you. Anyway, uh, <laughs> seriously, thank you, thank you for being part of this today, and I really enjoyed it. There was no real planning on this. It was just like, hey, what are you doing? Let's let's do a show. So here we I are. Was really relieved this morning when you said, oh, we're gonna do song by song. I said, oh my god, thank god. <laughs> I, I, did my research. I was prepared. And I was like, oh, I hope I didn't spend the weekend. Uh, so yeah, song by song format. I was thrilled. But that's that's how impromptu this was. I didn't even know what the format was until I picked up the phone this morning. So Honestly, I didn't either until we started. <laughs> I just figured we'd talk about Pull It. And that's exactly what we did. So mission accomplished. We have landed on Mars. And we want to encourage people to check out the Monster Munch. Oh, and goodness, Monster Munch. Oh, that is so much fun. And the Queen song by Andy Howell, Andrew Howell, called Man from Manhattan. And there's an Eminem song you could try. Oh, my gosh. there. We, I, I think I should create a Spotify playlist for this. And uh, so let me, let, me, let me do that. Songs uh, you might want to check out. Yeah, yeah. And I, of course, want to encourage everyone to join me in the darkness. I am on a dark, the darkness renaissance. I've purchased everything. Uh, there were two things I did during COVID. Uh, one of them was buy a bunch of my vinyl back before everything went insane through the roof pricing wise. Oh, good for you. I snagged almost everything. And then I noticed like the next week it was like, and now we're going to fleece you. And I'm like, oh, what are you crazy? Yeah. That much for that? You what are yeah. you on? You know what do you what what dopamine uh, <laughs> fix are you on? Anyway, it's and that and the darkness have made me fourteen again. Oh, what a what a place to be! Fantastic. Yeah, I'm loving it. And by the way, Justin Hawkins of the Darkness has a great video show on YouTube, and he is one of the most wonderfully funny. He has a great musical knowledge and love of music, and he is extremely uh, English at times, and I love it. So just a recommendation. Well, then, then he will know all about Monster Munch. 
I'm sure he does, especially since his drummer is Rufus Taylor, who is son of Roger Taylor from Queen. Oh, no. This is all full circling. Oh, no. And he also sounds like Freddie Mercury at times. So, yeah, he, I'm sure he knows it. So Amazing. It all connects. So Jeez. we're going to head on out of here. Find me on the next Zilch or Sarah or Christine or somebody. Uh, we never know quite what we're doing, and we're having fun keeping the show going. So I want to thank you for joining me today on the Zilch, your podcast full of monkeys. Thank you. Elliot Marks. Thanks, Ken. So we will see you on the next episode. Say see ya, Elliot. See ya, Elliot. Perfect. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fancy made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around.